We're going to do one of the contemplations which we have learned and without me saying them and you choosing which one you like. And I'll just remind you which ones they were. The first one was a loving-kindness contemplation to be free of enmity, hurtfulness, of troubles of mind and body and to be able to protect one's own happiness and wishing the same for others. And as you can always do in a contemplation, you can choose one of those sentences, one of those ideas. You can use all of them. You can use two of them, whichever you like. Whichever you feel is most relevant to your inner life. Which one is really meaningful? If the mind says, I never have any enmity, well, then you have very little chance of contemplating upon it. If the mind says, yes, this is something that's bothering me, well, then the contemplation may be very fruitful. And then the other one, the five daily recollections, which is decay, disease, and death. All that is mindy and delightful will change and vanish and one's own karma-making. I pick one, use all, whichever. Whatever you think may be most fruitful to help with their, your own purification, your own inner happiness, your own smooth and harmonious passage through life. Choose the one that has the most meaning for you and then look at it. And if you remember, we had an example yesterday in one of the questions, was it yesterday or the day before, can't remember, um, how contemplation is really done. It's an inner investigation, trying to stay with the subject, but getting an answer means a new question. It's an investigation into one's inner life. And it's an essential aspect of one's daily living. Most people do it sometimes anyway, without calling it contemplation. If they run up against a great deal of aggression or they get very upset, or very anxious, very fearful, they do start looking inside and thinking, what is it? What's going on here? If one has any kind of insight, one realizes that it's happening within oneself. If one has no insight whatsoever, one thinks it's happening outside of oneself, and one has to re respond in that way. These are, this is an extreme. Not so many people are totally on that extreme if they are interested in meditation. Those that are not interested in meditation would um, be more apt to go to that extreme. Just be careful of that extreme. Look at it. Are you thinking it's someone else that's making you do something? It's that simple as that. Someone else or a situation or the circumstances 
Is there anything that you think is making you do what you don't like doing? It's a very important question. So this investigation, we don't have to wait for anything unpleasant to happen. We don't have to wait until somebody becomes aggressive or starts abusing us or we don't get at all what we want. We can do it now. And the more intensive we get to do it, the more pertinent the answers are, the smoother it will be to live. The less ego, the more joy. Very simple, isn't it? But not easy to do. The simplicity of the teaching is one of its great advantages. It's so simple to understand, but it's not easy to do. But for that reason, we need to have that inner investigation. And we will find new answers if we do it properly. We will always find a new sort of opening which shows us something which we haven't seen before. This, even if that, what we see, is not exactly what we want to see. It may not be a support system for our belief in our own goodness. It's still an occasion for joy. Whatever we see, whatever we learn, it's enriching for us so we can be happy about it. If we start blaming ourselves, then, of course, it's not enriching. Then it's debilitating. So we have to be careful. A spiritual path is a path of the middle way, no extremes. We have to a balancing act, a balancing act of understanding, investigation, interrogation, understanding, and no blame. And as long as we blame ourselves for anything, it's just as detrimental to the well-being of ourselves and others as if we were blaming someone else. Whoever we blame, it doesn't make anything work better. On the contrary, if we have found a negativity within us and then add blame to it, we've got two negativities. That's totally unnecessary. One is plenty. <laughs> and we should always remember that. One negativity is enough. Just look at it and see it and that's fine. So we're going to do this on our own in any which way you can do it if the mind wanders off to future wishes and hopes or past remembrances bring it back. Let the past be where it belongs in the past and let the future be where it belongs in the future where it never happens. Just come back to this moment. This is 
a wonderful moment if we stay in it. As long as we think about what we want to get out of it, it's no longer wonderful. It becomes very stressful. If we want to get something out of it, it's very stressful. But as long as I'm in it, it's wonderful. And that's a whole difference between being concentrated and discursive thinking. This is the one moment I can live in and I can make it absolutely wonderful, not by fantasizing, by being with that one moment. I cannot recommend it enough. Try it over and over again. The human mind is geared towards doing the opposite, running all over the place, thinking of what it's going to do with what it's doing now. It's doing something now. It's meditating or contemplating. So that's going to be wonderful, going to show it to other people or going to use it for, for one's uh, um, profession or going to talk about it at the next meeting or whatever. It's not useful. Now, this minute. And that's really then a totally different experience. Always to start out, you can put the attention on the breath for just a moment and then extend some loving kindness to yourself and then choose the one of the uh, contemplations which you feel most inclined towards. And people often ask whether Buddhism is a religion and then they go on to say, well, or is it a philosophy or what is it? Well, naturally it's a religion. It's one of the five great world religions and it's a state religion in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka used to be in state religion in Tibet and also in Kampuchea and uh, it has approximately 500 million people that are saying they're Buddhist that's a religion they were either born into or the religion that they uh, adopted. Most of them were born into it. But what we understand about religion is not quite what the Buddha had in mind. And I have an inkling that most of the religion founders didn't quite have in mind what people are doing with it. I think it's a fair assumption. We have a very um, fortunate situation that not only can we go back to the original words of the Buddha, there are 17,500 discourses. And they're available. All of them have been translated into English. Some of them, English is a bit antiquated, but it's English so we can read it. We don't even have to learn a foreign language. They were originally uh, written down in Pali. Pali is a derivative of Sanskrit. It's 
the language the Buddha is supposed to have spoken. It doesn't have an alphabet. The alphabet that was used was Singhalese, the Thelonese, the alphabet of the Sinhala language. And we also have it, of course, in Pali in our Roman letters. So we have a very fortunate situation there, going back to the original words, which isn't good enough yet either. Certainly it contains philosophical aspects. Why not? How could it help it? Anything we talk about which isn't exactly only about the weather would have some philosophical aspect to it. It contains psychology. Of course it does. Anything that has to do with the behavior of people has to contain psychology. And religion always has to do with the behavior of people. So we certainly have those three aspects. But the main purpose and the main content of the Buddha's teaching is a practice path. A path, an instruction, what to do and how to do it, and for what purpose. Whether we then consider it philosophy, psychology, or religion doesn't really matter. Because if we do practice for the purpose indicated by the Buddha, we know at the end what religion really means. And we also don't have to ask. Because then we have it within. The practice path containing the guidelines of the Buddha is in short form enumerated in the Noble Eightfold Path and shorter yet in the three words which I have already used several times purification, concentration and wisdom. The whole of the teaching is divided into those three contains those three explains them from every possible angle over and over again the Noble Eightfold Path contains those three doesn't explain them just gives instruction what to do should we just like to see what the Buddha said think maybe it's very interesting, but not do it. There's no way we can understand it. None whatsoever. This is a misconception that is happening over and over again. Just because we know the language that we're reading, whichever one that may be, and just because we know the words doesn't mean we understand. It just means that we have a superficial 
information which we probably forget as quickly as we've taken it in. But what we practice and then experience, we don't forget. There's no way we can forget it because it becomes second nature. And this is actually what we're trying to do, have second nature. The first one wasn't all that satisfactory. We'll get a second one. And all of the guidance and the instructions which we can find, all the instructions, all the guidelines that I have mentioned here, each one is for practice. But also, it's interesting to know, at least on an informative level, what's the purpose of it all. Certainly the purpose is to have more peace and joy in the heart, but that is only an intermediate step. It works, but it's not the entire goal. The purpose of any practice that we do, and I should like to mention that that is the purpose of any spiritual practice, whether it's being explained or not, is to get rid of the illusion of a separate self. That's the purpose of the practice. That is a feeling and not an intellectual understanding. So we have to do every step on the way, particularly because the illusion of the separate self is so deeply embedded that while we may understand that intellectually and agree with it, and even that's not that easy, people often find that difficult, but even if we have gone past that first hurdle and agree with it and uh, don't mind the idea that there's no separate self, they, it's so deeply embedded that we really have to dig out the roots with which it has made its home within our heart and mind. Those roots are like tap roots. They, we can't just pull a little and then that whole edifice will come out. It's um, quite um, a deep and intensive practice. And that's why if we really want to meditate, if that's an idea we have in mind, I would like to meditate. We can't do it on its own. It's got to have all the other things which we're talking about as support systems. The stronger the ego illusion is, the less we meditate. Ego is in the way. 
It wants to think. It wants to discuss. It wants to fantasize, to plan, to hope. And mainly, it wants to have support. It wants to know that it is in existence and in existence as somebody special. The more of that we have within, the less we can meditate. Now that's also not a cause for sorrow, but it's a cause for investigation. If we really investigate our distractions and inquire into them, we will find invariably it's me distracting all it can be what else so we need to keep in mind actually what the purpose of the whole exercise is the purpose of the exercise is to find out that we're living in an illusion we're living with something which is creating havoc the personality belief the separate identity creates havoc in the world. It sets brother against brother, nation against nation, <coughs> children against parents. Nothing else can do it except that personality belief, the separate identity. If we can make that clear to ourselves and people who have practiced some and have seen their own dukkha and again the hate characters have it much easier there know it. They know it for a fact. It's something which is obvious. But again what's so obvious and what we know we still can't do. Again, no cause for sorrow, but it should be a cause for what is called in Pali some vega, urgency. Let's get on with it. Let's do it now. There is no other time except now. This is also another human fallacy to think, well, there's plenty of time, do it some other time. And all of a sudden one finds there is no other time. This is the time to do it. We have already spoken about one of the important facets of the teaching, mindfulness, and I like to come back to it once more because there is an aspect to it which also needs to be discussed and known. And to repeat and recapitulate, mindfulness is knowing only. It's being attentive to oneself, to recognizing what's going within. Contemplation helps, meditation helps. There are four foundations that we can use one is body, three are mind. I've already mentioned what we do with body mindfulness 
just as a reminder. Outside of meditation, body mindfulness. Obviously, it's also being careful and having regard for others. Because if we're mindful, we don't slam doors. And uh, we don't disturb anyone because we are trying to be careful. So we have regard for others. But it's far more than that. Mindfulness of the body, as I mentioned, is purification because we are really focused on something which cannot create hate or greed. We are in the moment. We're learning to be here now. And with that, we also can become aware of the fact which is the very first insight, a first insight which leads to total liberation. Namely, when we watch the body, what it's doing, we cannot help but become aware of the fact that the mind is telling it to do it. That there are two, mind and body, and that mind is the master and body is the servant. And while sometimes if there is some sickness or other inability in the body, the mind might tell the body something and it can't do it, well, that happens with all servants. (laughs) So this particular understanding has to be embedded completely and utterly because otherwise we'll forget why did we want to meditate why should I meditate it's very uncomfortable I don't really want to do it while we're here you're being reminded out there you're going to be reminded of innumerable other things quite different from meditating but if we are completely clear that mind is the master and body is the servant, then we have at least a handle on it. Everything else is fantasy. Just watch it. Could your body ever have appeared here in this meditation hall in Germany if your mind hadn't said, now come on, let's go there. And then the mind might even have said, oh, it's so far. And then the mind said, well, it's all right. I want to see Germany anyway. And then the mind said, oh, it's so expensive. And I said, it's all right, I have a little bit saved. So it's been discussing it. And finally, it's been quite clear. Okay, let's go. So then the body appeared. (laughs) Don't have to go any further than that. But, so that's, easily forgotten walking, sitting, standing putting one's clothes on going to the toilet whatever it may be 
the mind is in charge and the mind is in charge of whatever we do it also reacts to the body of course and sometimes it reacts very unfortunately well we can watch that it's the first step into insight knowing that there are two which are interacting depend upon each other but there's one which is the boss of the whole situation now we are of course quite able to look after the body most people are and we should because if we don't look after the servant it's not a very uh, loving situation and also could get, cause quite a lot of trouble but if we constantly only look after the servant and forget that there is a boss also a master and take the, him her for granted what kind of an outfit do we have one where only the servant is important and that's what it likes and the boss has to react to that so that's not a very wonderful situation so if we can remember that we might remember why we're meditating we're meditating in order to strengthen the one who's in charge we're meditating in order to bring peace to the one who is in charge meditating to bring strength and some clarity because only what's clear in our own minds is what we can do everything else other people do what we can do is got to be clear to us so mindfulness of the body brings that with it as a first step but please don't take my words for granted and say oh yes 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 that's the way it is <laughs> or doubt them and say no 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 that's not the way it is try it out yourself become aware of it it's so simple you sit on the pillow and the mind says oh yes it's time to get up Now try it. Let the mind say, "No, I'm going to sit here." What are you going to do? Of course, the last instruction is the one the body has to obey. So then you say, "Oh well, that's silly. Let's get up." So then get up. There's no other way we can do it. But please do it yourself. The Buddha did didn't want anyone to believe anything. But of course, he didn't also appreciate disbelief, which is skeptical doubt. But what he appreciated very much was people trying it out and seeing for themselves. And when we find out who's in charge of all this, all our mind moments will become far more careful of them, and we become more careful also about the karma we make in the mind. So the whole thing. 
works together and we can see how it operates in a human being. Now this um, mindfulness of the body in the meditation we have discussed outside of meditation as much as you can remember to do it because it also prepares one to sit down in peace. The second one the mindfulness of our feelings which is feelings and emotions we did that yesterday with the um, part by part meditation technique but of course it also enters into the understanding and the labeling the content of mind which is number four now there's number three which I haven't mentioned yet and number three it's a little harder to become aware of it's a more subtle and uh, very useful of course if we can become aware it's becoming aware of the underlying mood that one actually operates with most of the time and there are two kinds that are most prevalent some people operate with an underlying mood of negativity dislike worry dislike of themselves dislike of others rejection resistance fear it's an underlying mood and if one knows that and recognizes how debilitating that is one would of course try to do something about it most people don't recognize it they just think that because that mood is there they think naturally they think in those ways in those negative ways and find a justification for it and nothing changes it just remains that way it's a certain entry into unhappiness there's nothing more certain than being unhappy about that people get so used to it that they use that unhappiness as an ego support system look at me how unhappy I am or look at me how difficult I've got it if we say that often enough to the same people they'll probably get pretty bored by that then there's another um, possibility of an underlying mood and that's joyous and positive of course there are all sorts of moods in between now that person that has a joyous and positive underlying mood is much more it's much easier to deal with is much happier and uh, has it's much more difficult to see that this underlying mood of joyousness and happiness is actually dependent upon greed much more difficult to see takes time and 
Our greed does not have to be just materiality. It always does sort of overflow into that also. But it has all sorts of um, facets of things we want, of ways we would like things to happen. So it's a much more difficult understanding. And it's easier to live with, there's no doubt about it. And because it's easier to live with, people who do have that as an underlying mood very often think they don't need any of this spiritual practice. They're all right. Well, as a matter of fact, we're all all right. Except we often don't know it. So both sides are, of course, extremely important to find out what the underlying muta operates from. The underlying muta operates from could also be fogginess, total um, inability to see clearly. That's also possible. And then, of course, it could be a mixture. It could be a mixture of the joyousness and the negativity. It can be anything. But in order to do anything about it, to become aware of it, is the first step. And then, when we do become aware of that underlying mood, we need not respond to it with our thoughts, speech, and action, but change it right then there. If it's negative, obviously, we want to change it into positive. If it's joyous, we want to make sure that it isn't connected to wanting. It always is, unless we have found the inner joy. So if it's not, if it's connected to wanting, we would can try to let go. It's not easy. But to find the underlying mood, the third um, foundation of mindfulness can be extremely helpful to get a better understanding of what makes me tick. Why do I respond in the same way over and over again? Our pre-programmed responses. Press the same button and you get the same printout. And one of these days, we might get bored with that. Most people don't even know that it's happening, so they don't have a chance to get bored with it. But when we become mindful, we may see it. And then there's no reason to blame oneself. The only possible useful response is to smile at oneself. It's the only useful response. Smiling at all the things that one has done, thought, said and done automatically without knowing that one is doing them. This third foundation of mindfulness is far more difficult than watching one step or watching sitting down, but it can be tried. There's no reason why one can't try it. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the one 
that will help us most in our endeavors for purification of heart and mind. Mindfulness as such is already a purification system, but the fourth one is the one which in which we are able to name what's going on, where we label. So here it concerns very much the labeling and knowing of content of thought and content of emotion. In that very famous discourse of the Buddha about the foundations of mindfulness, he mentions a number of things which we could use as labels. Now this concerns daily life. In meditation, it probably would take too much time to try and remember. But in daily life, we should. And in meditation, the label is strictly a learning experience. It doesn't have to be a correct label, just a label. Because the thought collapses when we are the one who's observing it. And then we can substitute with attention on the meditation subject. But in daily life, the labeling can be more exact. And there are neg- obviously negative and positive contents of mind. And the negative contents of mind, the Buddha has named and enumerated as the five hindrances, which I have briefly mentioned before, but would like to detail now. That's the negative part. There are positive aspects in the mind, obviously. And the one which would be take pride of place would be the seven factors of enlightenment. But let's talk about our five hindrances first. We'll get to the seven factors of enlightenment, maybe. The five hindrances are titles, like titles of chapters, in which a lot of our responses are embedded. And these five titles are not difficult to remember. If we do remember those five, it's very helpful. They are, so to say, enemies, enemies to our inner peace. And if we know the names and the shape and the whole makeup of an enemy, it's much easier to not allow that enemy to come in. If we don't even know the name, don't even know what that enemy looks like, and maybe don't even know that that's an enemy. Let him in all the time. And if we do, of course, place havoc with our inner household. Playing havoc with our inner household, most people have experienced it. Some people, it's been, it's been quite immense, others just barely, but we do know what that means. 
So allowing an enemy in who has no other intention than to play havoc with within us is foolishness. The first helpfulness there is to know the name. Somebody comes to the door and tells us a name and we know this is an enemy. We may be much more capable of saying, uh-uh, no entrance. We also need to know, of course, the looks. What he look like, what he feel like in this case. When we know what he feels like, we have an even stronger case for saying, sorry, no entry here. So then, the names. The first one is called the desire for sensual gratification. And that is just a more elaborate expression for the word greed. Greed or even for the word craving. These are all words, concepts. We have to know what it feels like. Now this desire for sensual gratification, the Buddha compared that to being in debt. If we owe money to the bank, we have to go there every month or send something every month with interest. And if we're lucky, we finish doing that before we die. With this, we are in debt to our sense contacts. We have to get a new one if we want to gratify that desire. So we have to find another thing that looks nice, sounds nice, tastes nice, nice touch, smells good, or that we can fantasize enough so that we have nice ideas. And being finished one, and it doesn't take a whole month like our bank payments usually do, it takes moments. And then that particular sense contact is finished and we've got to go and get a new one. For people who have made good karma and those who come to meditation courses must have made good karma. For those who have made good karma there are numerous pleasant sense contacts. And because of the fact if one has that nature that is joyous and happy and is based, therefore, on getting the pleasant sense contact, it's very difficult to see. It's a, a difficulty which prevents one from seeing Dukkha. That's why the Buddha said it's like being in debt. It's not very good to be in debt, although in some societies it's a matter of course. But we have to pay interest and the interest mounts. That which is satisfactory at one stage does not remain satisfactory. And getting a new one all the time occupies time and energy and also 
contains anxiety. Because anxiety is, am I going to get it? Whatever it is, I've made up my mind I'd like. And having got it, can I keep it? And it's a foregone conclusion, we can't. We can't keep looking, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling and thinking the same thing, be it ever so pleasant. Having done it, it disappears and we have to do it over again. And most likely, the one that was very satisfactory the first time needs to be increased in order to be satisfactory the second time. There are certain restrictions we put on ourselves so that we don't become totally indulgent, which is quite um, sensible. But yet, the world offers innumerable sense contacts. There's no end to them. And if we believe or try to find our inner fulfillment through them, we are totally missing reality. There's no way we can be fulfilled by them. First of all, not only that they have to be repeated all the time, but also their nature of coming from outside into us prevents that solid rock of peace and joy that we actually carry within to be noticeable. We're waiting for things to come from outside. That does not mean that we can't have them. It just means that they're not fulfilling that in essence they're as much dukkha as the unpleasant ones. They produce anxiety, they use up time and energy, and they are not fulfilling. The Buddha compared them to a little lake in which many colors have been thrown. Once we get really desirous of some particular sensual contact, we can no longer see our likeness because the water does not give our likeness. It's full of color. The world is full of color. The world is full of attractions, glittering in all directions and dimensions, and in essence, it's fool's gold. It glitters, but it has no value. We take it to an assayer, he won't give us a penny for it. It's worthless. Again, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have pleasant sense contacts. But if we find within ourselves that which we all carry and which is independent joy one of the things that happens is that we will no longer spend so much time and energy for pleasant sense contacts they are not on the top of the list of our priorities secondly we'll be grateful for them we won't take them for granted or even worse expect them because we think that they are our birthright 
happens also very often. If we think they are birthright, we get irate at people who stand in our way. Irate at people that may not comply with the pleasant sense contact, may not be flattering, may tell us to do something which might be difficult, whatever. So, none of that will have any effect then. We have the pleasant sense contacts, and because we're not looking for them, nor trying to keep them, they have a much more effective quality. They are more meaningful, and we can be grateful for them. One of the um, remedies that the Buddha prescribed if we really would like to uh, diminish our search for pleasant sense contacts is that if there's something that we particularly want to analyze it to take it apart and see what is it that I want this is one way of dealing with it the best way to deal with it is through finding a higher happiness and that we'll discuss when I talk about the ways of the meditative absorption because you might remember or not doesn't matter that the lowest happiness was I mentioned the one I mentioned was sense contact the second one educating one's heart to be loving and compassionate and then the third one will be the meditative absorptions so of course if we substitute the higher happiness for the lower we have already taken a great step in our spiritual development so sense contact actually has as a next step a higher happiness the development of love and compassion within and then the meditative absorptions but when we use the fourth foundation of mindfulness and even the third one the mood or the content of mind and we recognize that this is desire for sensual gratification it brings clarity to the mind because we can gratify that desire through thinking if we're not disturbed by anything outside we can think up fairy tales the world is full of fairy tales and it's quite pleasant to think up fairy tales fairy tales of what it's like in heaven fairy tales of what one could be if one wasn't or what one has been when one was all sorts of fairy tales anybody can do it one doesn't even have to be visual about it one just have to be verbal about it recognizing that as the first hindrance will help to use this pathway 
for inner clarity. And inner clarity means that we have an understanding of why we're doing what we're doing, namely to get rid of the illusion of separate person, separate self. So as with mindfulness, of the content of mind, this may very well be the most difficult one to pin down, the desire for sensual gratification. It's pretty easy to find out that one is angry. But to find out that what one is making up or doing or hoping to do is based on greed and craving. Not easy. But again, recognition, no blame, change. Never blame. That's the way we are. The Buddha gave these names and words two and a half thousand years ago. We are often inclined to think that we are living in an age which is particularly difficult. Well, it has its own difficulties, certainly. But basically, the same thing happened two and a half thousand years ago. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to name it and elucidate it in the way which is useful for us today. The second one of the hindrances is called ill will. You can call it hate, you can call it anger, you can call it anything you like. But ill will is its traditional name. It's actually a very nice word in English. Ill is sick. Wanting some sick thing. (laughs) Ill will. The Buddha compared it to a bilious disease. So he actually did compare it to a disease. And it's like the bile coming up. Now, if anybody's ever had that, knows it's awful, the bile coming up. But if, it, when we, well, I was going to see if anybody's been angry, but it's a silly statement. When we have been angry, we know how unpleasant that is. And we may not have compared it to a bilious disease, to the bile coming up, but it's not a pleasant thing to be. Now, some people get angry far more easily than others because they have an underlying mood of rejection, resistance, dislike, fear, anxiety, all those negativities, so they get angry more easily. Others, it takes a long, long, much longer time to get angry. They've also maybe developed their patience a little better. And again, the most unfortunate aspect of anger is the mistaken idea that it's somebody else's fault. We couldn't be angry if we didn't have it within us. It doesn't matter what somebody else is doing. The formula for that is don't blame the trigger. The triggers in this world are so innumerable There are triggers everywhere. And they all come through our senses, of course. 
what we see here, taste, touch, smell, and think. And then the mind telling stories about it. And most of those stories that an unenlightened mind tells about those sense contacts, no, not most, all of the stories that an unenlightened mind tells about those sense contacts, they're all wrong, each one because they're all based on the ego illusion. Would I give a discourse on that? It's called the Brahmajala Sutta, the first one of the long discourses, in which he has 62 headings of all the opinions and views that mankind can have. And each one is wrong. Wrong in an absolute sense because they're all concerned with me. Now, obviously, on a relative basis, in relative reality, we have to deal with our own views and opinions, but we should do it carefully. We shouldn't believe them absolutely. We should check them out to see whether they are loving, helpful, caring, and concerned, or whether they're ego-centered, disliking, rejecting. If they are the latter, one can be sure they're wrong. If they're the first one, at least they don't do any harm. In fact, they can bring happiness. But on the basis of the way we think, none of them can be absolutely right. That's why we should make that distinction and look at our views and opinions with great discernment and discrimination and not believe them outright. Particularly, of course, this applies to the fact when they are negative. And when somebody else is supposed to have done something. Somebody else is supposed to have done something, you can be quite sure the view on that is totally wrong. Whatever the other person is doing, it's their karma. And the way we see it from our ego standpoint is only whether it's supporting all the wishes we have or whether it's not support system for our wishes is the support system for our ego. Naturally, we all have got the ego. But if we can only find out that it's a troublemaker, we've already done a great step into insight. And then we will know that it's constantly bothering us all the time no matter what, except when we're totally concentrated in meditation, then it gets a holiday. And that's why it feels wonderful when you get concentrated in meditation. The I, the ego, is having a holiday. It's short-lived, of course, but at least it's something taking time out. 
one of the ways it's taking a holiday also, at least a partial holiday, is when we're concerned with loving and helping others. It also feels nice. Because the ego is not on the top of the list. So when we are mindful of what's going on within us and we label and we become aware of ill will, negativity, the first thing to do is not to blame. The second thing we can do is investigate. Why am I angry? Why am I having ill will? Why am I blaming? Why am I resisting? Why am I not caring and loving and accepting? Love and care go together with acceptance. All these things happen to everyone. It's a great boon if you look into it. In that fourth foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha gives all these hindrances by name and by in, in detail so that we can really see what's going on within. He compared anger with a little lake in which the water is extremely hot and so it's uh, boiling and churning. We do get hot with anger. Some people get quite red in the face. (laughs) And uh, so, again, if we have a little lake and we want to look and see our uh, likeness and it's boiling and churning, we can't see it. Once we're really full-blown angry, it's very difficult to see anything except the anger. One of the things which is helpful is not to allow to become fully blown angry. It takes a fair bit of practice. It doesn't come by itself. Suppression doesn't help at all. Recognition and change helps. Some people, of course, as I said, have more patience. takes a little longer for them to get angry. But we know all, all know how unpleasant it is. The um, antidotes for the anger given by the Buddha are the loving-kindness meditation, which we have been doing, and, of course, also our daily activity of trying to arouse love and compassion for whoever is in front of us, be they ever so unpleasant or silly or stupid or whatever they may be. It doesn't matter. Mindfulness does not judge. Love does not judge. Mindfulness is just attentive and love is just warm and giving. The judgmental attitude that we are very much uh, imbued with is something which creates the division between us, the separation. And none of that helps us to love and to be uh, at peace. The division and the separation is only an ego support. That's all it is. I'm here and that's me. And everybody else is somewhere else. 
so judgment is not helpful. So these are the antidotes that the Buddha gave for the anger. But again, the more we purify heart and mind, the more lovingness we can establish within without any causes, and the more we are able to concentrate and get into what are called the meditative absorptions, the easier it is to really get rid of anger completely. We really need a lot of insight. A lot of insight which shows itself in what are called the past moments, which means that we have a personal experience that there is nobody sitting within. Having that personal experience of nobody sitting within and having it more than once will eventually eliminate anger. But we don't have to worry about the elimination of anger. What we can do is, first of all, recognize it when it wants to enter and not allow it to come in because it makes everyone that's concerned unhappy. There's enough unhappiness in the world we don't have to add to it. We should start to take responsibility not just for ourselves but for our surroundings. To create happiness in the world is not fantasy. To create happiness in the world means creating happiness within. And as we create happiness within, there's a way that it can come out. I've only got as five number two out of five. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about the other three at another time. We can't uh, throw a spanner in the works here. <laughs>